name this sound. and then rip off a piece of duct tape. That's what that sound was. Hello everybody and welcome to Starting Sustainability. I am your host, Kaylin Chenoweth, and this is episode 125. Let's catch up with what's been going on the last couple of weeks. I'm sad to report that there are no more blackberries on my property because they've all, the bushes are done producing them apparently. But the mulberry trees are still going strong. <laughs> I've collected two more quart jars of mulberries to freeze and snack on them all winter long. I'm very excited about that. Something else that is really cool, just by going for a walk on my property every day, I discovered blackberry bushes have started showing up. I picked a few of them and ate them and they were super sour, super sour. I gave them a few more days to kind of finish ripening up and tried them again. Perfectly sweet and delicious. Also on my property, I've discovered we have an apple tree and a pear tree. I don't know when those will be ready, but I'm just keeping my eye on them every day. I'm very excited about this. In terms of foraging news, I learned about the broadleaf plantain. This is actually a very common plant in yards and parks everywhere. You most likely have it in your backyard as long as you didn't spray for weeds. It's called the broadleaf plantain. It's very easy to find, easy to forage. You can just look up a picture. You'll be able to identify the plant right away. You know exactly what this is. What's really cool about it is that it's supposed to be good for skin issues like bug bites, bee stings, eczema, all that stuff. The next time a mosquito gets you, you can grab one of the broadleaf plantain leaves, crush it up, and put it on the bug bite. You want to get the juices out of it and put it on the bug bite. And this will relieve the itch from it, which is really great. I did try it. It worked. It's pretty awesome. It's not a permanent fix, but it definitely gives you relief for a few hours at least <laughs> until, until you bump and scratch that bug bite and activate it again. I went around and harvested a bunch of these leaves and I'm currently letting them dry out. And then I'm going to try to turn them into a salve that I can use throughout the year for any other future issues that happen within the next year. I've never made a salve before, so this will be interesting. Another update is our house. <laughs> I talk about this every episode since we moved. This past week, we got rid of the last mustard yellow wall in our house. It was the entryway, so Nat is now a calm, neutral color, very excited. The pond in our backyard is super low, so we took advantage and cleared out part of it. Not all of it. We left some cattails and tall grass for the fish and the ducks, but to be honest, the entire pond was really pretty bad to where we couldn't even see the water or go fishing in it because there were so many plants coming out of it. So we, we tackled it and calmed it down. And by we, I mean I watched the kids and Channing did all the work. <laughs> This past weekend, I also got 10 pounds of blueberries from a local farm and a case, a 25 pound case of peaches. I have been hard at work 
basically cooking as many recipes involving these as possible or just preserving. The blueberries are easy. I just shove them inside of a mason jar and stick them in the freezer and then I can pull them out and snack on them all year long. That's fine. The peaches, however, you have to go through the process of canning them which I have done one time. I did it last year with the help of my sister, very successful. This year I was determined I was gonna do it by myself and my peaches from last year inside the can turned like a brownish color cause I didn't use lemon juice. So I thought this year, okay, I'll use the lemon juices. And I was going up and down the grocery store. I found citric acid powder produce preserver by a ball. And so I thought, oh, I'll buy that and I'll try that except there were no instructions on it. There really were not any instructions on how much of this do I use. I looked it up on the internet. It said to use one teaspoon per cup of water. So I put a bowl of three cups of water, three teaspoons. That way, as I sliced up the peaches, I would dip them in that. Apparently three teaspoons is way too much. It was very, very tart and sour peaches. <laughs> very, very lemony peaches. <laughs> so every recipe that I make, with all of these peaches, because I canned all of them, 25 pounds worth of peaches I canned all at once. So all of my jars of peaches are super sour and tart with all this lemon juice in them. So every recipe that I make going forward, I'm gonna basically have to put an extra sugar in order to negate that super sourness. Hard lesson learned on that one. Before I did all the preservation of the blueberries and the peaches, I did pull some aside of both the blueberries and the peaches so I could make a beautiful, delicious peach and blueberry cobbler. How did I do this? Oh, I just went to Pinterest and I picked a random recipe, which was my mistake because I baked this cobbler following the recipe to a T and it was an epic fail, fail, full on fail. It bubbled up and over all over the bottom of the oven, filling the entire oven with smoke. Of course, I was playing with the kids out in the garage because the weather was nice. So when I came back inside the house, I could smell the burning, open up the oven and smoke was just billowing out all throughout our kitchen. Then we had to play the game of run and grab all the smoke detectors before all the alarms started beeping and sending everybody into a tizzy. <laughs> open up all the windows, turn on all the fans, trying to air it out. And then I had a gigantic mess to clean from the bottom of my oven. And then the little bit of cobbler that was left, it was just a sticky gooey mess. It didn't even turn into a fluffy cake-like cobbler. It was overall fail all around. Very, very angry at Pinterest. <laughs> I definitely went in there and left them a nasty comment. I was very mad at them, at the person who wrote that recipe, not Pinterest itself, but the person that wrote that recipe. Our garden is doing pretty awesome. It's producing cucumbers out the wazoo. Like we're picking four cucumbers a day and I try to eat one per day just to eat them up. Personally, I hate pickles and that's the only thing that I know to do with a whole bunch of cucumbers is turn them into pickles. I know, I'm like the only pregnant person in the world who hates pickles, but I do, I hate them. But Channing likes them, my husband likes them. I found some recipes on Pinterest. Fingers crossed these are good recipes. And went to the store to buy fresh dill because he wants dill pickles. I wasn't planning on pickling this year, otherwise I would have planted it in my garden. Guess what? All the dill is sold out. You know what else is sold out? All the pickling salt. Again, taking notes for next year. Buy dill and freeze it, or plant dill in the garden, and buy pickling salt long before canning season arises. The good news is now, July, is the time to start gearing up for a fall garden. 
broccoli, cabbage, carrots, lettuce. These are all great for the fall. Plus, a lot of the gardening supplies are on discount right now. So if you did not go and get a summer garden up and running, now is your chance. Everything's on discount and you can get going with a fall garden. At this stage of the pregnancy, my belly is pretty big, mostly because I've already had kids, so it shot out there right away. But it's making exercising really uncomfortable. I did score an exercise bike on Marketplace for 60 bucks. Pretty, pretty proud of myself on that one. Second hand and half the price, the best of both worlds. And I would like to take a moment and say happy birthday to Ruger, who is sitting down at my feet. You'll probably hear him snoring later on. Ruger is 10 as of July 23rd. So happy birthday, Ruger, my dog who eats everything. <laughs> In case you don't know, this dog eats doors, door frames, couches, windows, washing machines, and roofs. Yes, one time he busted through the window and got onto the roof and then ate part of the roof. That's the most memorable story I have of my dog. <laughs> So he's, he's definitely a memorable dog. I will never forget this dog. Happy birthday, Ruger. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. I get this is a sustainability podcast, but my first love was eating healthy, and that's why I became a dietitian. I took a continuing education course and learned some really great things about marketing and how they utilize psychology to manipulate our eating behaviors. And I found this absolutely fascinating and wanted to share it with you. Do keep in mind that I also see the same juxtaposition. How do you like that word? It means connection with greenwashing, a term that you might be more familiar with if you're more sustainably minded. So sustainability, eating healthy, they do go hand in hand. And then you're going to notice a lot of common trends between the two styles of marketing. So I like to title this episode... Why do smart people make bad food choices? The psychology behind our eating behaviors. Now this information primarily comes from a webinar that I attended to keep up my registered dietitian credentials. Jack Bobo led this presentation and I took excellent notes. <laughs> so give him the credit. This is his research, his work. Who is Jack Bobo? Jack is the CEO of Futurity a food foresight company, and is the author of the 2021 book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. So everything I'm about to share with you comes from him. Let's take a moment to reflect the past few decades in America, specifically nutrition-wise. Since the 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010, 2020s, nutrition in America is getting worse decade by decade. And why is this? Today we have technology that spreads nutrition and health information very easily compared to 50 years ago. Consumers know more about health and nutrition now than they ever did before. Also, we have the most access to nutritious foods in the grocery stores, more so now than ever before. So if we have nutrition information readily available, healthy food access at its peak, why has the nutrition in America gotten worse? Why are obesity rates still rising? To help answer this question, I want to tell you a story about a guy named David Wallerstein. He worked for a movie theater chain as a marketing guy. His job was to get consumers to buy more food at the concessions. He tried everything he could think of to get people to go back for a second bag of popcorn. 
Then one day he figured out people don't want to come back for whatever the reason. So he implemented the first jumbo sized bag of popcorn and it took off. Consumers purchased more popcorn, drinks, and everything else at the concession stand as a result. Later, Wallerstein went to work for another company. You might have heard of them. They're called McDonald's. In 1972, McDonald's offered a large fry for the first time, and the rest is history. McDonald's did it first, and then everybody else followed along in the fast food world. And then everybody else followed along in the convenience store world. <laughs> and, and you get it. Wash, rinse, repeat. It's not just fast food restaurants. Let's even change our focus to sit-down restaurants. Many restaurants offer food portions larger than the standard serving size. It's important to note that although the plate of food at the restaurant presents to be an edible portion size, the psychology has tricked you. A standard dinner plate is nine inches in diameter. Think of like your paper plate, like when you go to a picnic, that's your nine inches in diameter. Restaurants are notorious for larger plates. Some of their plates can be up to 15 inches in diameter. That's a very, that's a platter. That's a gigantic plate. That is a platter designed to feed a family, not just one person. And when you first look at the food on a 15 inch plate, your brain thinks, I can eat all of this. But when you transfer the same food to a nine inch plate, visually you'll recognize, whoa, there is no way I can eat all this because the food won't even fit on that nine inch plate. It is stacked really high and it is overflowing. Even if we do recognize the massive portions and put half of the food to the side, our brain is still working against us. If you only eat half of the food on your plate, your brain thinks you didn't finish the food. And so two hours later, you may be hungry again because your brain doesn't believe that you actually finished your meal. Psychology at its finest. Here's another example of psychology backfiring. Back in the 1980s, the trend of weight gain and obesity was gaining attention from health officials. Those who determined the dietary guidelines decided to focus on fats. Many of the recommendations were to consume less fat. And as a result, food companies began to offer more and more low fat food products. This was desired, right? This is what we want. We want low fat products so that way people eat healthier. If you weren't around for the 80s and the 90s, snack wells is what comes to my mind. That was like fat free cookies, fat free, <laughs> all the junky stuff, snack wells made it fat free, which gave the illusion of health. And therein lies the problem. Marketing teamed up with consumer psychology and it led to a very bad outcome. Our brains thought, if one low-fat cookie is good for me, then a whole bag must be great. <laughs> I've heard my husband say that many times with ice cream. This ice cream's low-fat, so I can have a bigger portion, like almost two bowls worth of bigger portion. And with this trick of psychology, all of a sudden, it was like we all had permission to overconsume products. Unfortunately, low-fat does not equal low-calorie. Now consumers are eating even more calories and not even realizing it. I have a sister, for example, she heavily eats peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which is fine. So she would buy the reduced fat peanut butter thinking that it would make her skinny. And I had to take it and compare it to a regular 
tub of peanut butter and showed her that the low fat actually had more calories. Now, how can this be? If you pull out the fat, the most calorie dense portion, why is it higher in calories? Well, because if you just take the fat out, you have a terrible tasting product. You need to make it taste good in order for people to buy it and eat it and buy it again. So then they add in a bunch of sugar and now you have replaced the fat calories with sugar calories, an over amount of sugar calories, which is why today Americans have such an insane sweet tooth because most of our food has been souped up with extra sugar to replace the fat. When addressing the question, why smart people make bad choices, another thing we need to consider is the timing of our grocery shopping. When do we go grocery shopping? For a majority of us, it's at the end of the day when we are mentally fatigued. It is very hard to make good decisions in a grocery store when we are mentally fatigued. Grocery stores today offer over 10,000 more products than they did in the 1980s. We are more stressed and overworked and now have more decisions to make at the grocery store. And if you're on a budget, math has now been added to the shopping, exacerbating the mental fatigue. Whether you're tired or not, it is very easy to fall victim to the halo effect. This is when a product has one good quality and we assume it has other good qualities. For example, Beyond Burger is sustainable. It's a vegan burger, but it's not necessarily more healthy than the other burgers. When you look at the calories, the fat, the cholesterol, the sodium, it's really not any better, but we all think it's going to be better because it's plant-based and that's the marketing at its finest. I remember a long time ago, probably almost 15 years ago, <laughs> I think I was still going to college, I had a conversation with my parents on the phone and they were so proud to tell me that they went to buy ketchup and they looked and saw a different brand that said with lycopene. And so they put the ketchup back and got a different ketchup brand advertising how it has lycopene. And they're so proud of themselves for making that choice. And I asked them, do you know what lycopene is? And they said, no. <laughs> and they spent extra for this ketchup with lycopene. Lycopene is a nutrient naturally found in tomatoes. All ketchup has lycopene in it but my parents fell for the marketing trap and spent the extra money on this other brand because the front of it said it now has lycopene. Even though they didn't have a clue what it was, they just knew it was healthy, so they bought it. That's the halo effect. And the last thing to take into account is how consumers are swayed by language that may have nothing to do with what they are trying to achieve in terms of healthfulness for their family. Another psychological trick, available heuristic. This is what our mind thinks when we hear a certain word. For example, we hear the word natural and people think butterflies and gardens and health and other really good things. But Ebola, salmonella, cocaine, those are all natural. <laughs> you get my point? <laughs> there are plenty of bad things that are natural, yet we always think happy thoughts when we hear the word natural. So the word natural is a very powerful influencer in the marketing world. It's actually more impactful than the word organic, but both are used to get you to buy their product. The purpose of this episode is to make you aware of marketing teaming up with behavioral science to get consumers like you and I to think that we're making good food choices when actually we are not. 
like I said earlier, it's not just food companies who do this. You might be familiar with the term greenwashing. This is a common term in the sustainability world. Greenwashing is when an organization spends more time and money on marketing itself as environmentally friendly than actually minimizing its environmental impact. It's a deceitful marketing gimmick intended to mislead consumers like you and I who prefer to buy goods and services from environmentally conscious brands. Environmentalist Jay Westerveld coined the term greenwashing in 1986. And he did this in a critical essay inspired by the irony of the save the towel movement in hotels that actually had very little impact beyond saving hotels money and laundry costs. You do know this movement. When you go to a hotel, they give you a little tag to hang on your door that says, don't change my towels because we'll be saving the environment. The hotels didn't do this to save the environment. The hotels did this to save money. <laughs> They just got to be able to put a little spin of saving the environment on it to help you think this was the right thing to do. And this was back all the way in 1986. That's the year I was born. That is 35 years ago. <laughs> That's when most consumers receive their news primarily from television, radio, and print materials. So they couldn't really fact check the way that they can today to double check and make sure that a company is being truthful and that they aren't being greenwashed. I do have some examples from other well-known companies. Back in the mid 80s, oil company Chevron commissioned a series of expansive television and print ads to broadcast its environmental dedication. But while the now infamous People Do campaign ran all over in the 1980s, Chevron was actively violating the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act, as well as spilling oil into wildlife refuges. In 1991, a chemical company, DuPont, you might have heard of them, they put together a big campaign for their double-hauled oil tankers. They put ads featuring marine animals prancing in a chorus to Beethoven's Ode to Joy. And it turned out that the company was the largest corporate polluter in the U.S. that year. But boy, those ads made them look really good. Greenwashing has changed quite a bit since the 80s, but it's certainly still around. We as consumers are demanding greener practices. And what's really awesome is that when we do fact check and bust companies for lying to us, we can take them to court. <laughs> oh, and I thought of one more example for you. Bottled water. The bottled water industry tries to overrepresent its greenness. Let's think about this. How many plastic bottles have you seen with a colorful image of rugged mountains? pristine lakes and flourishing wildlife printed on their labels. Do you think all that plastic is really helping the environment? Mm-mm, shaking my head no right now. Why are companies lying to us repeatedly about their greenness and their sustainability and how eco-friendly they are? Well, that's because according to Green Prince 2021 Business of Sustainability Index, 64% of Generation X consumers would spend more on a product if it comes from a sustainable brand. And that figure actually jumps up to 75% among millennials. And that is why marketers push these green campaigns. They want us to buy their products. They want us to think that we're making a good decision based off of their marketing, when in reality, it's not a good decision. It's again, another bad decision. 
and it is frustrating as a consumer. We are trying, we're constantly trying to do good for the world and we have all of this gray area, red tape, blindsided, backward psychology working against us and it is so frustrating. <laughs> it's, it's traps, that's what it is. They're trapping us over and over and we keep falling for them. So I put together a list of how you can avoid greenwashing. Here is a list of greenwashing tactics to avoid. So just by being aware of these, you'll see them and think red flag, red flag, and know to avoid it. The first is to look for fluffy language. These would be words or terms with no clear meaning, like eco-friendly or natural, like I discussed earlier. The second one is green products versus a dirty company. Watch out for the hypocrisies, such as efficient light bulbs made in a factory that pollutes rivers. Now this does sound simple, but you would really have to do your research for each company. There's an amazing web browser extension called Ethic. We had Austin from Ethic come on board. He did an interview with us here on Starting Sustainability. You would go to your web browser, whether that's DuckDuckGo or Google or Yahoo or whatever you want to use, and you would add in the extension Ethic, E-T-H-Y-K. So when you do a search, Ethic is the extension that will pop up and basically give you a green leaf. This is a sustainable company or a green leaf with a little red circle and a line through it, like the no smoking symbol, that red circle and line through it. If it's got that, then you know it's not a sustainable company. Ethic is trying to make it easier for us. So do support Ethic, it's free, by the way. <laughs> Number three is evocative pictures. Look for images that give an unjustified green impression like flowers blooming from an exhaust pipe or like the water bottle example I just told you about. Number four, designations that are just not credible. Look for the obvious attempts to green a dangerous product to make it seem safe. Now this is a bit extreme, but it's the best example I can come with off the top of my head, like an eco-friendly cigarette, like really? Or this is, you know, the, the more eco-friendly oil, or <laughs> like this is the better eco-friendly plastic water bottle, whatever the case may be, like really think it through. Is this, is this really better? Let's take two seconds to really think, is this really better? Number five, imaginary friends. Look for the third party endorsement labels. Sometimes these are made up. So it does help to know those endorsement labels on if a product is sustainable, if it is eco-friendly. Find those credibility certificates and those third parties and make sure that they're legit. And the last one is basically outright lies. This would be totally fabricated claims or data. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. We want to look for claims that are clear and easy to understand, that include details such as specific units of measurement like 70% organic cotton rather than made with organic cotton because it could only be 1%. They just did it in order to legally and technically truthfully put the organic cotton label claim on there. But if we get that 70% organic cotton, then we know that that is more credible. Look for data that supports sustainability claims. Current data should be available and updated on the company's website and anywhere else that they make sustainability claims. Third-party sources that will verify and certify these claims would include Carbon Trust Standard, Forest Stewardship Council, Rainforest Alliance, Energy Star, Sierra Club, 
or Greenpeace, those, just to name a few. There might be more out there, but those are most easily recognizable. Another thing to do is compare apples to apples. <laughs> when comparing your products, the one that you're wanting to buy, when you're comparing a product sustainability to a competitor's, make sure to compare the same product type so you're not misled. And look for clean operations. Look for sustainable practices in the manufacturing, waste disposal, and distribution operations. Not just the product itself, but the overall company and operations. Make sure images on ads and packaging are not misleading. Don't let the color green or images from nature like trees and flowers mislead you into thinking a product or brand is eco-friendly if it's really not the case. I would like to point out that there is a fine line between green marketing and green washing. So green washing is what we have been talking about, where you're being tricked. Green marketing is when companies sell products or services based on legitimate environmental practices and environmental positives. So if a company says they are embracing green marketing, that is actually good. <laughs> Most companies aren't going to admit greenwashing though. They're going to hide that. <laughs> but just to know the difference between those two terms, I don't want them to get used interchangeably and be mixed up. Green marketing is generally practical, honest, and transparent. And it means that a product or service meets the following criteria, that it was manufactured in a sustainable fashion, it's free of toxic materials or ozone depleting substances, it's recyclable or produced from recycled materials, it's made from renewable materials like bamboo, it's not made of materials harvested from a protected area or that negatively impact threatened or endangered species with their harvest, it is not manufactured with slave labor or by workers who are not fairly paid, it does not use excessive packaging and it is designed to be repairable rather than disposable. So this is what we want to look for with products and services and any business or company claiming to be supporting the environment. It's tough whether you're trying to eat right or be sustainable. Marketing is a big, well-researched area to get consumers like you and I to buy their products. And it's a shame that we have to be so diligent to outwit the marketing companies, but now that we are aware of their tactics, we can be on the lookout for them and avoid bad decisions in the future. It is now time for the weekly challenge. Let me draw a card over here. It says, write to your local political representative about environmental issues that concern you, whether it's the need for more recycling facilities, encouraging supermarkets to donate leftover food, or starting a community garden. You know, it's pretty simple. We can all sit down and draft a short letter, like one or two paragraphs. Pick one thing that you're passionate about and just speak up about it and let your political representative know that that is something that you, as a citizen of the community, would like to see come through. I've personally never done it, but that's why this is a challenge. That's something that we all should do. The next episode will be on August 8th. I'm going to talk about back to school because now I have a preschooler, so now I get to participate in this madness. <laughs> and hopefully we'll be able to tackle the ugly truth about electric cars. If I can get my husband's schedule to work out, he's on call, so it's gonna make meeting with him a little bit more challenging, but that that is the plan, whether it's the next episode or the one after that, that is coming up. Take care, Sustainer Nation and continue saving the world. I will talk to you all again on August 8th. Have a great one.
Bye. There are so many wonderful people doing amazing things around the globe. If you want to hear more about what we're doing down under, jump on over to Unbook Your Shopping Cart, a podcast who speaks to companies who have the eco thing down pat with some simple tips and hints on how you or your workplace can make small changes that can add up to a whole lot. Together, we can start a movement and make this planet a whole lot greener.